0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, um, across the street, my neighbor has put up his green and red laser light show. (laughs) And I'm thinking, if that pole drops over, then I'm going to get laser surgery on my eyes, or we're going to bring an airplane down to Lake Washington. Um, But this can only mean one thing, which which is that it is time for the Grinch Who Stole Christmas... Some of you uh, may not know this story, but uh, if you grew up in America, you probably did. It begins this way. Every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why no one quite knows the reason. Could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. Could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. I learned something interesting about this uh, story recently. The author of the book, who's a, a guy named uh, Theodore Seuss Geisel, wrote this book when he was 53 years old, which gives special meaning to a particular passage in here. I wonder if you ever noticed this. It says this, uh, I must stop this whole thing. Why, for 53 years, I've put up with it now. I must stop this Christmas from coming. But how? So, Mr. Geisel, Dr. Seuss, at age 53, writes this book, and he has the Grinch say, I've got to stop this. I've been putting up with this nonsense for 53 years. And I just wonder, what was going on in his life at that point? And there must be some kind of backstory to that. Well, we're talking tonight about hope. The Grinch, from his, what I would call his introvert paradise up there on Mount Crumpet, every year, for 53 years, would look down on the Whoville, and he would see a predictable circle start to form. And there in that circle, the Who's would sing a song that was noxious, to the Grinch. And because of that, he had a heart that was two sizes too small. And I, I just wonder if there was something going on in Dr. Seuss' life, uh, perhaps there's something going on in my life this time of year that might indicate, yes, in fact, um, my heart is two sizes too small we have been thinking about circles as I've been reading uh, our passage this week, and I happened to notice two weeks ago that there was a circle on the front page of the New York Times magazine. Did you happen to see this? The Sunday magazine two Sundays ago had a, a graphic of a roulette wheel. And in the center of the wheel, there was a phrase... The future is, dot, dot, dot. The future is. And then around that center, there were these uh, sectors, and each one had a different word, which could be a potential outcome in our future. And those words were words like violent, bankrupt, unequal, optimized, crowded, automated, synthetic, doomed, uh, utopian, And at this moment, the needle happens to be pointing to the word mysterious. You open up the magazine and read inside the copy that frames a series of articles on the future, and you read this. Lots of people pretend they've got tomorrow figured out. Tech gurus, politicians, CEOs, and yes, journalists. They might have included preachers in the list. But if we're honest with ourselves... The view ahead of us has never been murkier. Listen to this. That's because the problems that haunt our world today are problems for which technology, long our spur to envisioning better futures, looks more like a cause than a solution. Make sure you got that. They're saying, our future is at best uncertain because... What we used to think was the solution to life's problems, technology now looks more like a problem than a solution moving forward. I think this is amazing. This is the oracle of American culture telling you we can't envision our future, and what we start to see, we're not sure we like the looks of it. In other words, they're saying to people who claim to have hope, as we do here, our mission is to share hope in Jesus Christ, hey, if you've got hope... We need you to share it with us. We need you to communicate this hope to us in a way that is relevant, authentic, and clear. I think this is striking. This is your neighbor speaking to you, saying, if you've got hope, I need it. Or maybe this is you saying, as you come to church today, if you've got hope, I need it. Because we all need hope. Our future is uncertain, and it's hard to believe after 53 years, or you fill in the blank, number of years you've been on the planet, that there could really be anything new. And in the absence of any vision for a future that's more appealing than our present, our heart begins to grow smaller and smaller. A couple weeks ago, my small heart called on the telephone. The call actually came from a family member But the voice I kept hearing on the other end of the line was actually the voice of my small heart. Let me explain that. Uh, I told you on Christmas Eve a few years ago that my family has been going through a hard time, a little bit of a crisis. In fact, you may remember the story. My wife and I were taking a walk. We looked up at a picture window. We saw what seemed to be the ideal family. My wife started to cry and said, why does our our family have to be so complicated? That was three years ago. Since then, we've worked really hard on uh, a lot of issues in our family. We've gone through family therapy, and God has been very faithful. We've experienced his grace, and I believe we are in a new place. Well, I get this phone call, and all of a sudden, George goes into this kind of relapse. I hear something from a family member that makes me think we're where we were three years ago, that the whole cycle has gone full circle, and we're standing right back where we were. Really? Am I in crisis again? Well, it depends on what you believe. But that was my small heart, uh, taking the call, placing the call. Hold on to that idea because we're going to talk uh, this winter about the Christmas Grinch. For four weeks during Advent, I want to reflect with you on a series of passages in the book of Ecclesiastes. I kind of think of Ecclesiastes as like the Grinch I actually love the Grinch, and I love Ecclesiastes. Probably the hardest book in the Old Testament to interpret, but perhaps the most rewarding if you give it your time. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes is like a 20th century French existentialist, raising tough but good questions about hope, hoping to move us from false hopes to something more substantial, something underlying a bigger story. Tonight our guides will be two. We'll be looking both at a teacher and at a prophet, and we'll be talking about the geometry of hope, circles and straight lines. So let's go to our first guide, which is a teacher. Would you pull out your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 1 through 11? Ecclesiastes can be a hard book to find. Um, crack open to the middle, you get psalms. Go to the right, you get Proverbs. Go one click more, and you're at Ecclesiastes. It's on page 536 of the Pew Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 1 through 11. Now, by the way, while you're turning there, we don't really know who wrote this book. Um he introduces himself as a son of David, probably in the royal lineage of David. He's obviously a philosopher if he's a philosopher king. Uh, he may be King Solomon. I think not so likely. The Hebrew suggests a later period in Israelites' It's probably written a time when Israel's lost its home, lost its hope, turned away from its God and finds itself in the wilderness of exile. But the writer refers to himself as the teacher or Koheleth in Hebrew, which means the assembler, the assembler of sayings or the assembler of people who hear wise sayings. We're not sure. So we'll just refer to him as our translation does as the teacher. But will you listen as I read the first 11 verses of this great book? The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil in which they toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams... Run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they continue to flow. All things are wearisome, more than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? Ah, it has already been. In the ages before us, the people of long ago are not remembered, nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. This is the word of the Lord. We have two texts tonight. This is the first. It comes to us from a teacher, and the geometry in this passage is circular. I want to uh, just help you to notice three things here that I would call heart shrivelers. If you want to just picture for a moment a heart with a circle around it and a noose pulling tighter, closing in on that heart, constricting it, and reducing it in size. These are three things that will shrivel up your heart because they shrivel your hope. Let me just give them to you, and I'll take a moment to show you that they're in the text. The first is chasing a weak hope. The second is snuggling with the familiar. And the third is defending against disappointment. First, chasing a weak hope. Look at verse 2. Here we find the refrain of this teacher. He says, vanity of vanities. This will be the chorus. I think it's like 37 times we find this in the letter, in Ecclesiastes. The word vanity just means mist, breath, vapor. that thing you see on a cold day when you breathe out and it's ephemeral. It doesn't last. And the writer, the teacher, will take us through a catalog of things in which you and I tend to place our hope, and he'll prove that they're weak hopes. After all, whenever you have hope, you have hope in something, or you hope for something, or you hope about something. And he asks us to think about what are the things that humans typically hope in? Well, he'll catalog things like wealth, and power, and Love and music and wine and sex and social activism and even wisdom itself. You see, these are all good things, but if they become sources of ultimate hope in your life, you will find yourself disappointed. They're vanity. They're empty. They don't last. Chasing a weak hope. The second heart shriveler is snuggling with the familiar. Verse 3, as he moves on, he says, What do people gain from all their toil? What's the point anyways? Why trouble yourself? And then there are a list of, of, of verses in which there are pairs that describe cycles or circles. Things that do things that end up right where they begin at the start. Generation goes, generation comes. There are actually three environmental or natural images. My favorite is verse 5, the sun is depicted here as rising and setting. And then the Hebrew word is literally it pants back to the place where it started. As though the sun were just <laughs> trying to get back for the sunrise to be on time for the next day. And of course, we have the wind blowing in circuits and the streams run into the ocean, but the, probably the Dead Sea, but the Dead Sea never fills up. The water just keeps coming because it goes back to where it began and comes again. What's the point in all of this? What well, the writer is pointing out is that change is really hard. If you're a leader, you know something about the resistance to change. You biologists refer to it as homeostasis. It's an interesting word. It's a helpful word. Homeostasis has two parts, the Greek for homo the same and stasis for stand. Uh, homeostasis is the uh, a propensity of an organism to want to stand in the same place. There can be all kinds of stimuli that try to move it into a new place, but it resists. So your body, for example, on a cold day will heat you up to 986 Your body on a hot day will cool you down to 98.6. It's like you've got a thermostat that tries to compensate for any change to keep things just exactly the way they are. Well, it's not just a biological truth. It's a sociological truth as well. My family, for example, or your family. Your family may have someone who's wanting to change, who tries to change. And you might even say, oh, that's good. I'm glad you're trying to change and get your life together and do better things. But you know what? Your family resists that change. Why? Because we all like the familiar. We like what we're comfortable with. Even if it might be worse than something better, we stick to it. And so as one person in a family system starts to change, move in this direction, another person in that same family system will move in an opposite direction to keep the system in balance. Nobody likes change. They say nobody likes change except a baby, and even it cries. But the point is, we can get too comfortable with the familiar. We can snuggle with it. And even though we'd like to have a better life, we never dare to do the work to get there. The third heart shriveler is defending against disappointment. You know this, that there's risk involved in change, and it's better uh, to protect your heart and to lower your expectations than it is to go after uh, a dream. Verse 10 says this. There's a little quote. It's like somebody in the back of the classroom raises their hand and say, Hey, wait a minute. Isn't this new? You know, I mean, I've got a smartphone here. and Did you have that in your day, Solomon? And he goes, Ah, you know, the technology may be new, but the way the humans relate to it is just exactly the same. So, no, there isn't anything new. It kind of squashes expectation. Don't look for things that are new. You'll only be disappointed in the end. And here's how this works. Let's say you look for what I'm calling a weak hope in your life. Let's say you're trying to find your identity in maybe a relationship or maybe in your work. Well, there are two outcomes there. On the one hand, you could be disappointed. Your work doesn't deliver an identity that you feel good about, so you're disappointed. I think a worse outcome is actually that... You're not disappointed that your hope is rewarded by that object. So all of a sudden your marriage now does give you identity for a season or maybe your work is very rewarding and you feel like, Oh, maybe I'm an important person and find an identity in that. What does that do? It does, it creates for you what the Old Testament calls an idol. And the, and the more that idol rewards your search for identity, the greater the disappointment will be someday when it fails you. And it's too much of a burden to ask of your job. It's too much of a burden to ask of a relationship. So uh, George Bernanos writes, in order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that deceives. This is what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is trying to do saying, don't put a noose around your heart. It'll shrink you if you chase a weak hope, if you snuggle with a familiar, or if you de- defend against disappointment. Better to believe there's nothing new under the sun. Let's move from the teacher to the other guide that we have this evening, and that is a prophet. Um, would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1? This is the text that Lewis and his friends read to us earlier at the Advent count candle, by the way, do you know that the first Advent candle uh, has a name? It's It actually has two names. Its first name is the hope candle. But it also is referred to as the prophet candle. You have any guesses why we would call the first candle in Advent the prophet candle? Here's a fun fact. You can impress your friends with at cocktail parties this, uh this Christmas season. All four gospel writers begin their good news, which is what gospel means, with a prophet with a reference to not just any prophet, but the prophet Isaiah. Specifically to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. All of the gospel writers begin with a prophet. So he's our guide, and if the teacher worked with circles, we're going to find the prophet works instead with straight lines. So let's look at this passage here, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I would invite you to read this with me as an act of worship, corporately together. Uh, would you stand Uh, If you haven't pulled it out, it's on page 812 of the Pew Bible, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. You see what I just did there? I actually quoted a verse from Isaiah 40. This is how influential that passage is. Grass withers, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. This is what a prophet knows. A prophet doesn't understand history in the same way that many worldviews do, where history is perceived to be cyclical. The teacher in Ecclesiastes says, if you look at nature, it looks like it's cyclical. History. But the prophet says, no, I don't believe it is cyclical. It might appear that way, but but that, if, if that's the way observation makes it seem, the way that revelation makes it seem is linear, because there is this God who has made rich promises to his creatures, and he is ever faithful to keep those promises. So at every given moment, any point in history, we can expect this God to faithfully fulfill one of his promises and break in with something new. This is Isaiah 40. And so all of Israel is leaning forward on its tiptoes, waiting for the fulfillment of this. And so when Jesus comes, Isaiah 40, verse 3, is on the lips of all of the evangelists. And they say, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Not circles anymore. Straight lines. You might picture here now a heart with a, a highway. It's coming right into the heart, a highway. And as I gave you three heart shrivelers, now I want to quickly give you three heart builders. Three things that can jack up your heart, that can expand it and open it. And these would be good things for us this Advent. These would be good ways to practice Advent. The first is this. Well, I'll give you all three. First, get in God's story. Second, believe the good news. And third, open a new path. First, get in God's story. Verse 1 Notice how Mark begins his gospel with a word that is actually the first word of the whole Bible. He says the beginning. Self-consciously, he uses the word with which the scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, opens. In the beginning is Genesis 1. He's reminding his readers that they are in the middle of a story that began way back when God created the world, the heavens and the earth. That was the beginning of creation. When Jesus comes, this is the beginning of the new creation, and we live in the middle of this great story. And so I say to you, the first thing we need to do is get in God's story. That's why we spent the last four weeks, and if you're new to UPC, I want to really encourage you to go to our website and listen to those last four messages, because those messages give us the story arc of the whole Bible. There we discover that God is our maker, he makes you in love, God is our redeemer, your sin and death do not get the last word on our lives, he's rescued us, he's our rescuer, he's also our king, which means you and I have a mission in this life, and then finally he's our victor. So that our toil is not in vain, we discover, because we have eternal purposes. So get in God's story. Oftentimes I find what I'm trying to do is get God into my story, which shrinks God down and asks him to acclimate to my hopelessness. And God isn't at all interested in acclimating to my hopelessness. He says, no, George, I don't want to get in your story. I want you to get in my story. I want to expand your hope and expand your heart. So live in a bigger story. The second heart builder is to believe the good news. And this is right where Mark goes next, the beginning of the good news. Now that's almost a technical term in the New Testament. The gospel means good news. But it's always used in ancient context as the report of a battlefield victory. Imagine that your king has gone out to fight a battle against a strong enemy, and uh, the king wins the battle, sends a herald back to town. You're there on the parapets waiting. How did it go? Are we about to be slaves or worse? And the herald says, I have good news. I have gospel. That's what it meant. The king is victorious. We are free Mark says, this is what God, the Son of God, has done for us when Jesus comes. He comes to bring good news of a great victory, a new regime over all creation. The King Jesus has been born as a baby. This is about grace. And the prophet knows it's not about what we do that matters in terms of creating something new in our lives. It's about what he does that matters. Grace, God's unexpected, undeserved, incomprehensible grace That's good news. The third heart builder is to open a new path. Verse 3 gives us an action, calls us to respond. Prepare, he says, the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, I I want you to be clear. You understand this. He doesn't say, make your path straight. That's the way I tend to, to read this, is though Mark is saying, George, straighten up your life, and then Jesus will care about you. No, the good news is that he cares about us even when our lives are not straightened out, even in the midst of all of the bad answers that we give to life's deep and persistent questions. What we do do is we open up a highway to our hearts, open up a pathway that the Lord will walk through. His path is to be straight, not ours. Allow him to come into our lives. How do we do that? Well, It's by believing the good news. Notice that Jesus hasn't thrown us back on ourselves. He hasn't given us the law. He hasn't said, make your life straight. He hasn't given us good advice. He's given us good news. And our call is to believe that. I've told you, and I'll tell you again, that being a follower of Jesus, being a disciple, means believing, moving from unbelief to belief in every area of our lives. Every area that's explored, for example, by the teacher. Remember, Wealth, power, sex, music, wine. In every area of our life, what would it mean for you to move from unbelief to belief? To listen to the good news and go, oh my gosh, I have a God who loves me. Oh my gosh, I live by grace. Oh my gosh, the King Jesus is promising to overturn all that opposes everything that's good in this world and in my life. Prepare a path for the Lord. Well, when your small heart calls, the invitation is to prepare a path for Jesus. And I want to offer you a prayer tonight, and it's very simple. It's these words, "O oh Lord, break open my circle. Break open my circle. Let me give you two examples of this. Sometimes your small heart will call when you are running in circles, like when... I received this phone call from a family member. And when this family member called me, and I went back in time to three years ago when I really was in crisis, I had a choice to make. And that choice wasn't, what will I do? The choice was, what will I believe? Do I believe that I am the one who has to hold on to all the anxiety? Do I believe that I am the one who has to bring all the solutions? Or do I believe that I and my family are loved by God, who's in the middle of our circle, who can break that circle open, and who, in fact, has caused great growth in my life and in my family's life. Am I going to act out of that or out of the old life that we used to live? I was moving from unbelief to belief. Sometimes your small heart will call when you're running in circles, but sometimes your small heart will call when the world around you is running in circles. I want to tell you one quick story about a young man named Tyler Wig Stevenson who was raised by two activist parents. Uh, Both of them fought for nuclear disarmament. It's back in the 70s and the 80s, and uh, he grew up knowing how destructive our nuclear arsenals are and that we have the capacity to destroy the world multiple times over. What a burden for a little child to go up with. And at one point in his life, he heard the question, what are you willing to do to rid the world of nuclear weapons? And he took it to heart, and he tried to do everything he could possibly do. And he became an activist, but he was motivated by fear and by anger. Over time, he burnt out. One day, he tells a story in one of his books. He was in the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco, got into a stairwell, and he feels he heard the voice of God speaking to him. Here's what God was saying to him. These are his words. Tyler, this world is not yours, not to save or to damn, only serve the one whose it is. In other words, Jesus was saying to him, this world already has a Savior, and it's not you. Your job is not to win a victory to save the world. Your job is only to reveal the victory that has already been won by me your life is to expose my victory well he moved from unbelief to belief he became a follower of jesus christ and far from dimming his enthusiasm uh, for a nuclear free world it actually kindled it he broke out of his fatigue and burnout and founded an organization called two futures well what about you this advent do you expect anything new in your life do you think about your situation maybe it's your family maybe it's your work Maybe it's your financial situation. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's relationships that you're in. Would you dare to expect something new this year? I know that you and I will be the same people on January 1st that we are today. We'll be living in the same world. But it's possible that we might be relating to that world with bigger hearts. After all, you know what happened to the Grinch, don't you? He expected that circle to form down below Mount Crumpet as it did. But what he thought would happen in that 54th year was that there would be the sound of wailing because, after all, he had stolen Christmas, and these were people who had been robbed and burglared. And the sound that he heard was not the sound of crying. It was the sound of joy rising in straight lines to his ears and to his heart. And he stood there, Dr. Seuss tells us, puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. And then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say, that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your inestimable grace. We thank you for the mystery that you have drawn near. God with us. Emmanuel. We do pray that you'll, through your spirit, enable us to puzzle and puzzle To dive deeper into the depths and riches of its meaning that our hearts might grow. We pray that for ourselves. We pray that for the people around us. We pray that for our church and for our city and for this world. We are so tired of waking up to the same old, same old news. Would you give us the courage to believe because of you, we await something new. Jesus name. Amen.